From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hey, it's Sean Elling. Maybe you heard, I'll be taking over as the main host of Vox Conversations this fall, and I'm still coming at you on Mondays until then. But I wanted to let you know that this month we have something a bit different for you in the feed on Thursdays. It's a collaboration with our colleagues at Even Better, Vox's new section about our individual and collective well-being. I'm Julia Furlan, and I'm your host for Even Better, a special series on Vox Conversations. It has been long enough since the 2010s girl boss revolution for everybody to roll their eyes at that old lean-in rhetoric. You know, work extra hard, have it all. Ignore the societal structures designed to exclude you and just keep on achieving no matter what. Looking back on all that, it's clear how myopic and privileged that entire conversation was. But you know, bad news about capitalism, it's still here and most people do need to work. With that, the power dynamics of workplace culture haven't gone anywhere. Especially as we figure out what work even looks like after two and a half years of a global pandemic. A lot of things in the last couple years have been upended, which maybe means that there's some room to imagine a better version of workplace dynamics. My conversation today is with Minda Hartz, whose work finds pathways for young people of color, especially women of color, to succeed in places that weren't built for them. My challenge to you, if you're listening, first of all, thanks, great to have you, but also I want you to consider the ways that your workplace could be more open, more accessible, more flexible to people of all kinds of experiences. Because opening doors and making space at the table is imperative no matter what workplace you're in. And now is the time, people. Let's get on it. Minda Hartz, welcome. Thank you for having me. Excited to be in conversation. Thank you for being here. So, okay, I don't really know how you feel about this, but especially lately, I've been thinking about sort of the 2010 era of like corporate feminism and how incredibly limited it was and, you know, Sheryl Sandberg stuff. Like, I just feel like I've been ready for whatever's next for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And the work that you do, I think, is stepping into a new version of an equitable workplace, a new version of how to map something out, how to find possibilities. And I wanted to start there. That 2010 era corporate feminism, it feels like it only applied to like wealthy white women. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. I think that It's really that feminism that woke up my feminism because I actually did not see myself as a feminist Mm. because I thought that that was for white women, you know, and I never really saw myself as part of that. But hearing kind of the Sheryl Sandberg, the Marissa Mayer, you know, kind of this white woman CEO phase. Girl boss. Yeah, girl boss. (laughs) All of those things. 
it made me think, well, what they're talking about is true, but it's not inclusive of all women. And what would it look like for feminism to be intersectional? And I really was starting to kind of wrestle with that. And I realized if I wanted to see change, that I needed to be part of the conversation. And that's how you started the work that you do? Absolutely. I, I read Lean In because everyone said it's the women's manifesto. And I said, wait a second, I think I'm a woman, right? Uh, let me let me get in on this and see what, what this is about. And after I read it, I'm like, oh, this is pretty much all the other books I had just read. And yes, this is good information that I could use, but it's actually not talking about me as a Black woman, a woman of color in the workplace. And who's supporting me? Who's talking about my experiences? And I realized that I was waiting on a Cheryl or somebody to save me because that's all I ever knew of superheroes, right? Because of what they show us, who gets to do the saving. And so I realized that I could save myself and send somebody else a life jacket for them to save themselves. Oh, I love that. And I want to I wanna get into that a little bit. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is you write and think a lot about how to help women of color, especially young women of color, as they navigate their careers. I remember early in my career, I would like pitch stories and I would like really work hard to speak to the communities that I care about and to like make sure that I was uplifting the voices that were important to me. And I felt like I was in rooms of older white people and they really didn't get it. I want you to speak to that feeling of the people that you want to lift up, that you're trying to send a life raft to, and how you're addressing that in the work that you do. Again, I appreciate you thinking of it in this way of expanding the table, right? Because I think for so long, there's only been the table that was created for none of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've all been trying to figure out how to make it work. And when we try to fit inside of systems, you're never going to change them. So you have to dismantle them. And And I started to think about whose voices get to be heard, right? And whose voices are silenced. And throughout my 15-year previous career in corporate and nonprofit industries, I always felt like my voice was silenced at the expense of my own well-being. And I thought, if I'm feeling this way, there must be tons of other women who are feeling like their voices are silenced or that they can't speak their truth, right? And I just thought about the consequence of us continuing to operate with our voices silenced. We're never going to change the system. And so I thought, I've been a beneficiary of so many women that have come before me, Black women in particular, Brown women in particular, who they leverage their courage so that I could benefit from it in 2022 and beyond, right? And I thought, who's going to benefit from my voice? Right. Who's going to benefit from my courage, right? And that's why I think it was important for me, even though I didn't have the same pedigree, I didn't have the same influence, but I had a voice. I just had to decide how I wanted to use it. And if I could role model that, then the next woman could say, hey, I don't have to be the COO of a company. I have my voice right now. And I think it's just us seeing what different courageous leaders look like inside the workplace and changing the face of that. I want to hone in on one thing that you're saying, which is like, what does using your voice look like? What does that sound like? What are the specific things that you tried to do to address that? Yeah. Well, For so long, being like the only in my office or in my company, I just always walked on eggshells. So I, again, never thought that I could use my voice in the same way that the dominant culture could, because when I saw someone using their voice that they weren't from the dominant majority, then they get like a scarlet letter put on their forehead, right? Mm. Or that they're the problem, those sorts of things. So I always shied away from it. But then I realized that if I don't use my voice, how will people know what I need? How will I be able to change the 
trajectory, right? I don't need to go from zero to 100 real fast, but people need to know what good looks like to Minda in the workplace, right? Yeah. I mean, were you afraid of people really not listening to you and seeing you as a person who was like angry? I mean, I think for me as a Latina person, I was afraid of being seen as sort of like frivolous and loud, gregarious, which I actually am, you know, like (laughs) that's part of who I am. Right. But I was afraid, it felt like I was afraid of myself. And I wonder if you had those thoughts where you were afraid of being perceived in a particular way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Angry, feisty, docile, you know, anything that would even prevent us from speaking up. And I think all those narratives were created before we even got to the workplace so that we would question ourselves, right? And so if you're constantly questioning yourself, at every turn. And then the people that you work with are questioning yourself at every turn. At some point, we're participating in our own oppression, Hmm. right? And I knew at work, I was never the angry Black woman. But when I came home, I might have been. Right. (laughs) Because my voice had been silenced from nine to seven, you know? Right. And, And I didn't think I could use my voice in that way. And then at some point, I realized if we don't use it, there is a consequence. And we all know what it looks like walking on those eggshells. So I'm saying, what could be the counter of that? We owe it to ourselves to give ourselves permission to see what using our voice for good looks like. Mm. And when you say you didn't want to be perceived as the angry Black woman at work, and then you came home and that's who you were, you're saying that you did not speak up. You just like festered in resentment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. So I was never angry. I was never the stereotype that people perceived women of color, Black and brown women to be. But because I was so oppressed inside my day-to-day work that when I got home, the people who love me the best didn't get the best of me Mm. because now I hadn't been able to be my authentic self. I'm frustrated, right? Because I never get to say what I need to say at work without this fear, right? And so the people who love you at home, they're like, why is she always uptight? Why is she this? (laughs) And so I think the reason why we do need to use our voice isn't just for the workplace, but it's for each of us to just be healthier inside and outside the workplace. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the connection that you're making between like who you are at work affecting who you are at home is a really big one. And it actually has a little bit to do with the next sort of things that I want to talk about. How do you think that the work from home pandemic lifestyle, how how do you think that that has changed the way workplace hierarchies function? Yeah, I I actually think that work from home was probably the best thing that could have happened to women and people of color to some degree, because when we were in the workplace, it wasn't working the traditional, right? The normal, quote unquote, when we were before the pandemic working, we weren't safe at work right? Mm. Only certain people had access to privilege. Only certain people had access to promotions and got to, again, use their voice in the ways that they needed to without having some of these stereotypes, meeting them and greeting them at every turn. But when people of color and many women got to work from home, some of those layers, some of that trauma, that stress were stripped away because now we have to do the work, right? It's not about how you wore your hair that day. It's not necessarily about who knew Tom when, right? You know, all of those office politics, not that they weren't there, but they were kind of stripped away and allowed people just to do their work. Absolutely. There was one particular research point that came out maybe about six to eight months ago, and it said that Black employees felt like over half of them felt like they belonged at their companies for the first time while working from home. And I knew why, because they're not micro and macro aggressed at every single turn, right? And it makes a difference when you can just do your work. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that feeling of sort of people are just able to be themselves. I think a lot of people lament the return to the office, right? They're like, oh, in-person connection, blah, blah, blah. But like, I do feel like there's a movement right now that says, yeah, I can do my in-person connection with the people I love who are my family and friends, and I can do my work. Those can be two different spaces. And if I can show up and do my work and then end my day and end the work, I'm golden. Yeah. And that's what we all got hired to do was the work, right? But being <laughs> being in the physical office created all these other layers that prohibited many of us from doing our best work. And now we get to experience a workplace a little bit better than we did before. Yeah. Do you want to speak to sort of the experience of being the only Black person in the room? Yeah, I do feel like being the only one has a certain tax that many will never understand inside the workplace. And what I love about the shift in the workplace now dynamics is we shouldn't be trying to get back to normal. We should be getting back to better. Hmm. But first we have to decide as individuals, what does better look like for us? And I think that having this time away, even if you are the only or one of few, again, I think we're finding our voices in ways we didn't before thinking now we have options, right? Before you might not have known that you had other options to find a new job or talk to your manager about what's working and what's not. And I just think that you know, people of color and women are thinking about their careers in a much different way. And we're redefining our narrative. Right. Absolutely. And I also just want to like shout out that like not everyone got to work from home and that there's a lot of privilege and power in the people who did get to work from home and didn't have to be exposed to the ongoing pandemic that is still raging in this world we live in. I kind of want to shift and think about power dynamics. You know, you talk to and write about women of color in many different workplaces. I wonder how you think about power and how you talk about power and make that explicit. Yeah, uh, power is very important, right? But the word privilege, I think some people get afraid of it because they haven't been necessarily using it for others and just for themselves. And so I think it scares people away. And I think power is one of those things too. But when I talk about power, it's what part of this equation can we solve, right? Mm. My goal is not to convince you that I'm worthy to be here, right? My goal is to say, what boundaries do I need to create so I can do the best work of my career? And I am kind of changing the definition of power to say, what is your definition of power, right? And that's what we should be leveraging because I think we've been looking to predominant groups for their definition of power. And, and I think now is a time where we get to seize it according to our own definitions. I see. So you're saying that like people of color should lead with their own definitions of power to sort of throw out the rule book and, and show up. I think so, because we have been operating, I feel, under a lot of fear because we don't know what our power could be. But I think a lot of us are now seeing that we've always had it. We just, again, have to decide how we want to use it. Mm. And I think that's where the boundary setting comes in. So part of my work is saying you've always had the power. Now you have to give yourself permission to let people know what that power looks like. I'm excited about that because now we each get to decide what that means for us. I wonder if you can give me an example or a story of that in action. I love this question because I get the privilege of hearing from a lot of women of color who are inspired by some of the work that I do so that they can be reminded of their power, right? It's not that I've given them any, they're just reminded of what is already there. And so, for example, salary negotiation. 
oftentimes as, you know, women, we're sometimes waiting on people to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, it's your time, right? Here's the raise. But if we've been documenting our own work and promotions or wins, we get to also establish and set the table to our manager. We don't have to wait for them to come to us. We can actually initiate those conversations with our receipts, as we Mm. say. And I think, again, realizing and harnessing the power that we already have and not waiting on somebody to give it to us. And even if we don't get the yes, we controlled the ask. And now we can decide, is this the place for us or not? That's where that power, we still have it. Man, you're really speaking to something that I think is extremely challenging for a lot of people. But I just want to highlight that what you're saying is document your wins and show up to your raise conversation with some receipts, right? One thing that I want to talk about is a lot of the folks who are listening right now might be in positions where they're really trying to do right by the folks who have less power in their workplaces. I mean, I think that the times that I've been a manager, the hardest thing that I had to do was empower my team and give them all the opportunities and and be really flexible while also sort of answering to the higher-ups who were like, we need productivity, we need everything to go in a particular way. How do you recommend someone work in that sort of middle space? How can they do right by the folks that they manage while still listening to the pressure from those higher ups? Yeah, I think that's a real question and it's a real space that many people sit in. But I think that as a manager, as a leader, and we all can be leaders, we don't have to have a title for that, is to say, how can I best invest in my team, right? Mm. What does that take? And investment isn't a one size fits all. I actually have to build relationships and trust with my staff so that they feel comfortable telling me what they need. And then from there, I can help them remove barriers. And I think what happens sometimes in that middle sphere is that we're not removing barriers for our staff and our teammates, but we're creating more. So partially it's how do I commit to everyday acts of equity as a leader? And I think if we reset the table every day to say, what can I do to do that? We're asking ourselves, what does my team need to do their best work today? And I need to be able to provide them with that. And I think if you always keep that at the center, that's going to be better for productivity and better for business. Everybody is a winner if we lean into that. Lean in. Ha, finger guns. (laughs) The new lean in. Lean in two, three, four, five, six point oh, whatever it is. When we come back, the people with power at work, the bosses, the managers, what can they do to help empower their colleagues? That's coming up after a quick break. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. 
Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I feel a little bit like I want to hear of a moment that you were able to sort of pave the way for someone. Because I think one of the things that you mentioned and one of the tenets of the work that you do is about how to throw out that proverbial life raft to someone who's coming behind you to like empower everyone to be a leader. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means? You know, when we first started the conversation, I use the word courage. And one definition that I like to use is the ability to do something that frightens one. And I think for me, it was saying, yes, I'm not the most senior person at my company, but as Audrey Lord said, beware of feeling you're not good enough to deserve it. And I think people need to be reminded that you deserve dignity, equity, humanity, and respect in every workplace you enter. That mm-hmm. should be table stakes. And so my work is to remind people that those are the tenants that each of us should have access to. In the moment that you're not feeling that humanity, this isn't race or gender for me, it's humanity, you're not feeling that, then maybe this is not the space for you, right? You belong in every space, but you also have to know what spaces are no longer beneficial to you, Mm, mm. right? And I think part of that is just to role model, here's what's possible. I am that girl. And if I can do it, you can do it. And I'd like to share the sauce so that people are just encouraged. And I think because when I first started doing this work and talking about, well, what about women of color in the workplace? You know, we have different experiences. A lot of people thought I was race baiting or something like that. But now people can respect the work because we're talking about equity. Mm -hmm. And that's all it should have always been about. But again, those silos of feminism, it hurts people. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like one thing I want you to like reiterate is you said everybody deserves respect, equity. Can you say those four things? Yes. Everybody deserves humanity, dignity, equity, and respect in the workplace. Humanity, dignity, equity, and respect. I feel like, okay, no one needs to go back to like having a like inspirational poster in their classroom, you know, <laughs> like we don't need inspirational posters. But like, I think if you really sit down and you said reset the table, you know, if every single day you sort of focus on those four tenets, I feel like that's, that means that you're doing something. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And again, we all deserve that. But because not everybody has been getting those tenants, we then question, is it possible? And I'm saying that it is, even if we have to leave some of the spaces that we've only ever knew. I wonder, what do you do if you're not getting equity? How do you address that? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really big question. So for a long time, I was waiting for equity to happen for me, right? I was waiting for humanity to meet me <laughs> in the break room. Where is she? Where, <laughs> where, 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 where is my humanity equity cherub? Right, exactly. And once I realized that, oh, okay, it's never coming because I have to be a participant in creating the boundaries and the expectation that I deserve to have it. So one of those things I did was giving myself permission to have conversations with people. If I like the work that I do, we always shouldn't have to be the one to leave, but you also need to have conversations with people who might be able to help you. Like what kinds of conversations? Were you like, hey, can we get coffee and I can show you all the things that I did? 
<laughs> I wish that was the case. Well, in my particular case, I was not experiencing any of those four things. And I kept thinking if I do more things, if I show up early, stay later, that those things would happily appear. And they never did. And at some point, I realized that I actually have to have a conversation with my manager to say, here are the things that aren't happening. I really like the work that I do, but I need you to help me remove some of these barriers that I did not create because I could be more productive this way with your support. Mm. And I had to relinquish myself to say, let me have a conversation and see if this person can meet me with some humanity. Mm. And after I've had that conversation, if they aren't, or if they are, then we hopefully can resolve the conflict. But if we can't, then that's information for me to say, I deserve another space that will give me that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really tricky is like knowing when a workplace is beyond repair. It wasn't built for you and it's not going to change and you have to just sort of find a new path. I mean, I work in media. So like for me, the decisions are often made without my consent where, you know, they like lay off my entire team or whatever because that's what media does. But like, I wonder if you have any guidance on sort of how people can check in and say, like, this is what I need to see before I sort of look for other work or get another gig. I'm glad you brought that up, Julia, because even when I was experiencing the worst of the worst in the workplace, I had to work three to four more years before I was able to leave. But what I had to do was to say, how can I reframe this, right? And it's part of how do I now make work work for me, where I'm no longer trying to make it work for Tom and Steve every day, right? What does Minda need from this place? And for me, it was taking advantage of professional development stipends, getting certified for preparing for my next best thing. I was utilizing, if I want to be a better manager, what stretch assignments could I ask for? Hmm. I started to leverage the resources that I had where I was to say, how can I heal? How can I be healthier, be more authentic, practice those conversations that I need to have right where I am. And I gave myself permission to do that because I knew at some point everything will prepare me for my next thing. And I just changed my mindset. You know, I really respect that because a story that I think about sometimes is that when I was a manager, I had to do annual review conversations and I had some real clear feedback that I wanted to give. and. In the moment, I was a weenie and was not able, I just said everything was fine because I literally couldn't find the words to actually be honest because I think I felt weird about my power and I felt weird like the institution wasn't staffed properly. There were larger things at work and it wasn't this one person's fault, but I also needed to address some things about the way that that person was doing their job. And I just feel like I want to hear a little bit about when you're really like in the moment of wrestling with these hard conversations that you have to have at work, what are some of the ways that you recommend people check in with themselves and like map out their skill set, map out the things that they want to do? Yeah, well, two things. The the one thing that I'll say that's helped me and it still helps me, it, it's a phrase that I tell myself each and every time when I have to have a difficult conversation or I'm contemplating it is say what I mean without saying it mean. Hmm. So I allow myself to go into a situation and have a conversation and make sure that it's rooted in dignity, humanity, equity, and respect. Hmm. I can't control how that person responds to me about what I've said, but did I show up with the right tools and emotional intelligence to have the conversation? Because if I don't document this on the record, then nobody is 
can come back to say, oh, well, we never knew that, Minda, because you never said anything. And, and that's partially what I had been dealing with throughout my career is I never spoke up. So people never knew how I really felt about things, right? So how could I be upset fully at that? And so I had to start to document. So the other part of that is the documentation. Even if you don't talk about it with your manager or with HR, are you writing that down for you so that you see there are patterns? This isn't something that you've made up in your mind. This isn't something that was a one-time event, right? And once I started to put those things on paper, when I was ready to have conversations, it was rooted in facts, right? Wasn't rooted in my feeling, right? I was actually able to root the conversation at 12.55 X, Y, and Z. This and this happened. And that helped. It helped. Yeah. Well, and also it feels a little bit more neutral than being like, this one time, blah, 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 you know? Yeah. I have like one more thought about this that I want to sort of articulate, which is like, you mentioned something that is very familiar to me, which is like, you know, my dad is an immigrant and I wasn't born here either. And I took his career advice so to heart. I thought that my entire job was like, show up early, stay late, work three times as hard never ask for a single thing. I mean, I really took that to heart. And I wonder, it seems like you also had your your days of showing up early, staying late, really pushing yourself. I wonder how to get out of that mindset. I wonder how we can let go of that. I'm glad you brought that up because it was what the advice I got. You know, I was I was first generation college student, first person in my family to work in corporate America. So the advice was, work hard with your head down, right? Don't rock the boat. Oh, yeah. Oh, why would you do that? They're paying you. They, you know, like you have health insurance. You're good, you know? Right. Just be grateful to be here. And for so many years, probably almost a decade, I was just grateful to be here because I'm like, I'm here. I'm not going to mess this up for me and my family, right? But going back to the humanity, dignity, equity, and respect, we should all be experiencing a workplace where we could be our best selves, right? Not just some get to experience it good and then others of us have to sit at our desk and just make everything work. And so I think the reason why we've been giving a lot of that information is survival. How do we survive in this country? How do we survive in the workplace? But we aren't passing on tools to thrive. And that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation because we don't have to continue to pass on the same tools of surviving the workplace, but thriving. And we, and we have to change the narrative of what thriving looks like. Oh, we really do have to change that narrative because guess what? It's not sustainable. You cannot do that your whole career. You can't even do that a little bit of your career. I, I think I did it for a solid 10 years and I think I learned a lot. I think I grew a lot, but... I could have learned and grown in other ways. <laughs> <laughs> All of us could have. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I, I think there's one thing that I want to like hone in on, which is sort of the flip side of that. Like, what do you do when someone, your peer, who's like on your same level, is not showing up, is not working as hard as you are? What do you do with a slacker, I guess, is my question. <laughs> Oh, I think it goes back to, I'm a firm believer, Julia, that everything is rooted in boundaries and what can we control? So if the slacker is impeding upon my work, what conversations do I need to have with that person rooted in the facts, right? Because I've been documenting and seeing it, not that I feel like you're being a slacker. This is where we have to say what we mean without saying it mean. And I think for women and communities of color, we have to normalize us using our voice in the workplace so that people know what good looks like to us. Mm. And that's part of giving new tools because for so long we've been told, just be quiet. Mm -hmm. 
And it hasn't done us any favors. It really hasn't. I wonder, like, when you say boundaries, is that saying, like, hey, this is my job and this is your job? Or is that saying, like, I don't work after 6 p.m.? What what do boundaries look like in practice to you? It's yes and, right? So, for example, many of us have been working from home. Those who, like you said, have been able to. Doesn't mean that just because you're at home, now you can work from sun up to sundown. Oh my God. Just be, you know? I mean, you can, and some of us do. <laughs> I mean, you can, and we are, but the moment that we need to take a break or we want to go to a outdoor barbecue, then we feel like bad or we don't want to like tell someone that we need this type of thing. Prime example, a good friend of mine, one of her managers had been asking her for reports on Sundays and she reached out to me and I said, you know, you're on vacation. You need to communicate to her that you're not going to be able to do this until you return back. I know this is tough, but you're going to say what you mean without saying it mean. And that's the boundary because part of your job is not working on Sunday evenings just because that person can. And I think, again, once we put in that boundary, then people know where we stand, right? Right. And I think a part of it is just not letting people know where our lines are and people cross them every day if we don't even have some from ourselves. Yeah, I think you're so right. I also like going back to the idea of like, if you have power in a workplace, the people with the most power need to set the expectations that other people have lives outside of work. It is imperative. If you are a person who is very high level on your team and you are working every day, off hours, you're you're going above and beyond, you're setting a really bad example for everybody who is on your team. Yes. And we can't say that humanity, dignity, equity, and respect is here if we're not affording that. Because just because we work at the same place doesn't mean we experience the workplace the same. Right. Exactly. And like, I think that when I managed a lot, one of the worst things I did was just try and guard everyone else's spare time. And then I, I just tried to fill in. <laughs> and, and like, that's not sustainable either. No, no. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that I think you have a lot to say about, which is what do you do when someone is underestimating you? Yeah, that that's a thing because many of us have unfortunately, not intentionally, but underestimated ourselves, right? Yeah. Because we haven't always been encouraged to be our best in the workplace and to go after the things, you know, because for many of us, we have to have every single box checked before we even like go after something or do something, or we've been passed over for countless promotions because we didn't go to happy hour last Thursday, you know, all of these things without our control. And so I think it goes back to this phrase that I always tell myself is I belong in every room, but not every room deserves to have me. Ooh. <laughs> Like, say that again. Slow it down. I want to hear everything about this. I belong in every room, but not every room deserves to have me. Damn. I feel like that's like the heart of it. It's the heart of it because we've been questioning ourselves so much. Do we belong? Is this right for me? Why did they choose me for this? And we're constantly questioning everything. We get many of us, not all of us. And then when we get into the rooms, we're wondering why we're here. And so then we get into that mindset of, well, I don't want to rock the boat. Again, we belong. We've worked very hard. And I always say I belong in every space, but not every space deserves to have me. For so long, I was trying to fit into everything. And I can't convince you that I matter, that my work is important, right? And I think that we first have to 
honor ourselves in those ways uh, first and see ourselves before we expect it from somebody else. Right. But like when you say I belong in every room, but not every room deserves to have me, I feel like what you're saying is my work is valuable. What do you do when other people don't think that your work is valuable? I just remember being the intern and there's like a long conference room and we're having a big meeting and I never sat at the table because interns weren't sort of like invited to. There was like a row of, you know, you could sit on the radiator or whatever. And I I just feel like there are workplaces in which that feeling of not every room deserves to have me doesn't apply to certain people. You know, I know I've said it before, but it really is a mindset shift. And I think that before when I entered the workplace, I was very much an enemy state of mind, right? Like, why am I here? Why are they choosing me? Do I belong here? It's all the questions, right? Right. But then I moved into this empire state of mind where, Minda, you have worked very hard to get here. Why would you question your worth? Right. Just because someone else doesn't see it, doesn't own it, you look younger than everybody else in the room, you don't have to gaslight yourself. And that's part of it is saying, okay, they may not see it. Who are my allies? Can they help me get to this space? But I'm not going to spend the next 15 years of my life trying to convince you that I deserve a director title when I know that my work is valuable and it just may not be here that is seen, but it doesn't mean that it's not. And I think, again, we sometimes think that these are the only spaces that can celebrate us and or tolerate us, however you might define it. And there are spaces <laughs> that do see our value, but because we may not always know where they are, <laughs> you know, yeah. then we get fearful. And so part of it is saying, at least you know what you bring to the table, regardless of if someone sees it yet or not. Right. Like that basically like you hold your own power. It doesn't matter when other people, I think that that's really smart because one of the hardest parts of all of that was when I believed what other people thought of me. I thought I don't have power. I'm an unpaid intern. And people look at me as someone who they should tell to make copies, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, that's who I am. It's very easy to absorb that message because it's all around you. I guess my question is, like, how do you combat that? Who do you find? Who do you connect with to combat the you are powerless narrative? And we feel powerless when we're the only or one of few. I had an old manager early in my career tell me that I was incompetent. Oh my God. But yet he would always come to me with when he needed something done. So I would always have this weird thing. Like I'd always play it on a loop in my head. You're incompetent, Minda. You're incompetent. Yet I'm his go-to person. How does that work? But that was something that I kept feeding myself because this is what this man, my manager said. And at some point I realized, no, Minda, you're not incompetent. <laughs> you actually bring a lot. I don't know why he said that. That's his issue, but I don't have to hold on to that because I know I had to learn what my value was regardless. And I think that it's a choice. We can decide, do we want to be part of this system and the approach of how they look at people of color or women or, or anyone on the margins? Or do we define who we are for ourselves? And I think that's part of just having these conversations to be like, wait a second, I'm not the only one that's been told that, mm -hmm. right? Or I'm not the only one experiencing that. And once we realize that we're not the only ones and why are people saying these things to kind of make us question and doubt ourselves, then we wake up to a, a new nirvana and say, mm, that's not who I am. And I'm about to show you who that is. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I want to pull out one thing that you're saying, which is that you were told you were incompetent, but you were competent. 
I often tell my students that the first thing that you need to do is be good at your work because no one can argue with work that is well done. And that's sometimes hard because when you're learning, sometimes you're kind of just shitty for a while. (laughs) I feel like I want to hear your advice on sort of like, what are the things that you have to do first? Like, you have to make sure that you're good at your job, that you're showing up on time, that like some of that dad narrative is true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it it is, right? Get to work on time. Your break is 30 minutes. Don't make it 45. Like, those those are the things that we all should want good work ethic. But historically, many communities of color have been told that you're incompetent, that you're not good at your job. And I also had to look at, does my track record match with what's being said to me? I'm getting employee of the month. You're bringing me on the biggest accounts that there are. So obviously, these are not real things that you're really saying. But because you've said it to me and I'm 25 years old, I'm taking everything you said to heart, right? Mm. And now I feel like I have to work 50 times harder. And I think, again, it's part of the system that we've sometimes fed into because it's the only thing we've known to say, well, if they've said this about me, then that must be true. But then we have to question and counter, wait a second, I've never gotten that in my one-on-one reviews. Why are you saying this to me now? And I think part of that is we accept so many other people's narratives about us in the workplace that it starts to determine and dictate who we see ourselves as. And so I had to find out who Minda needed to be for me and not through the eyes of somebody else. Oh, yeah, that's really, I mean, and I think sometimes that's the biggest challenge is like looking in the mirror and saying like, no, I'm okay. This is fine. Mm -hmm. To that point, can you talk a little bit about the power of affirmations for people of marginalized identities? Because I think, I don't know, I think that they're powerful. What do you think? (laughs) Oh, I believe that they are because Sometimes we're never going to be affirmed in our workplaces. Yeah. Many of us, I spent 15 years in my former life. It was rare that I was ever affirmed on occasions. And so I had to realize that I can't wait on somebody else to affirm me. I have the power to affirm myself. (laughs) Oh my God. But again, it's back to the power dynamic. Sometimes we only see it as linear, but we have so much power, even that in of itself. And I realized that "Hmm, I do belong in these spaces, right? Does this space deserve to have me? Is there another space I need to have? I want a promotion. There's no room for growth here. Doesn't mean that I'm not worthy of it somewhere else, right? Right. Or I want to stay here. Let me have a conversation with my ally or my sponsor and let them know what I've been working on and articulate my value and quantify my worth. I realize that I have a long range of ways to help myself. Maya Angelou said, you can't, I'm going to paraphrase it, but she said this really great quote of, You can't control what's happened to you, but you can determine if you'll be defined by it. Right. And I think that part of that is saying, okay, I can recreate my narrative at any time that benefits me and part of like owning your own brand. And so once I realized how much power I had, Julia, I was unstoppable. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. Like the image as we're talking about affirmations, I'm just like remembering standing in my first little business casual polyester dress, standing in the like shared bathroom of this company doing a power pose, like trying to summon my TED Talk strength and just really failing. And I I just feel like, is it just like the power of positive thinking? Is this like the secret? Like you wish it and it's true. I want to hear, I want to speak to the people who are skeptical about this. Yeah. I'm glad you, you brought that up because I'll be honest, I was never one of those people that bought the affirmation books or like had a thousand 
sticky notes on my window, you know, saying the things. That was never me. This is triggering. I remember I had a sticky note on my computer that was like, you are worthy. And I was like, <laughs> I can't believe that I did that. And everybody could see it. And I just did that. That was like my technique. Oh, God. To be clear, it didn't work. <laughs> so for me, I was like, I never thought that was my thing, right? But what I did, but I started to think, wow, those people are onto something because we have to fill our own cups, especially if you're in spaces who are not doing that. So maybe it's not affirmations, but it's mindful meditation. It's calling your best friend on the phone and saying, hey, pour into me. We need to be affirmed by people, places, and things. And I think finding our groove to be reminded of those things on the days where we're questioning ourselves even is so important. And it's just more of reminders. So maybe you don't want to use the word affirmation, but what are the reminders that you need throughout the day to remind you of what you bring to the table, even if no one else sees it? Yes, absolutely. And I think you mentioned something that I want to think about more, which is like finding a sponsor, finding a mentor. How do you connect with the person who is going to lift you up? Because I remember there was a point in my career where I was like, people want me to be a mentor, but I think I need a mentor. Like, I'm not ready. I want someone else to ment me. Please, what is going on? Can you speak to the process of finding a sponsor and a mentor, people that are going to gas you up when you need that? Absolutely. So I think that we all can be mentors to each other. You don't even have to know someone, right? Like I pick up people's books. I listen to podcasts. They are mentoring me and they may never know, never meet me. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we can tap into these different spaces. Brene Brown is a mentor of mine, right? Right. I don't know her, but there's certain pieces of, of her work that really resonate with things that I like. And so I get that from her, right? Yeah. And then sponsors, in the workplace, when I was in my former life, I used to think that if I worked hard enough, I'm going to get the opportunity because we work in a meritocracy. And then I looked at it and I saw, oh, my colleagues are moving up faster, but they're not working as productive as me. The numbers don't even match. You know, how is this happening? And I realized they had a network. People were speaking their names in the rooms they weren't in because they had a squad of people invested in their success. Yes. And that's when my whole career shifted, saying that I can't do this work alone. <laughs> I can't keep my head down. I got to lift it up and I need to let people know. And eventually, as I started to build relationships, a sponsor arose. And I think that's partially putting ourselves out there to let people know what we're doing. Because if we want more out of our career, people need to know what we're doing. Yeah. I think that one thing that you're hitting on that I really love is like, you got to ask for help. Like, it's not shameful. It's not sort of frivolous. If you say to someone, hi, I haven't gone up in my current company. I got to leave or something needs to change. I'm not happy. Can you make sure that my name is out there? Can you hear the things that I've done? That relationship building of someone who is going to look out for you when you're not there, that is incredibly powerful. And the other side of that is it's a really nice thing to do for the people whose work you respect and admire to just say their name. And guess what? It's free. You know, it's not your job to get them a job necessarily, but like you can say like, hey, I can't take on this work right now, but here are three of my people who I know would do a great job. Listen, amen to all of that. And I think what trips a lot of people up is that you feel like you have to be like in the C-suite or you have to have some level of high level of influence. We all have the capacity to speak someone else's name in the room. But what I will say is my career shifted when I built relationships with people inside the office from 
the executive assistant to the janitor, to the HR, to the tech support. And when I started to expand my reach in different places, then people thought of me for things. Oh, you know who you should be talking to? Minda. You know who's in San Francisco right now? Minda. Minda. Nobody would know that if I didn't get out of my cube, if I didn't get out of my office. And I think that for part of us, it's not, oh, we have to go to happy hour. We got to go to online bingo. No, (laughs) this is for us, for people to see our names and see our faces. And that helps with our career trajectory. Yeah. And also people remember when you put their name out there. Mm -hmm. And it's a really nice way to just sort of lift as you climb. I think that that's a really good way of thinking out about it. That's, it's a larger concept. I did not invent it, neither did you. But lift as you <laughs> climb is a helpful framework. It is. Before we wrap, I want to ask you for some like clear pieces of practical advice that you want people to sort of take from this podcast and like walk into the world. Yes. So three things that I kind of like think about each and every day is Number one, success is not a solo sport. And meaning that you need people on your team. If you are the captain of your team, who else can help you move forward? And so think about who those people are. Maybe you don't have a full squad right now, but one or two people that you could start to connect with, ask for a virtual coffee. Like you need people to support you. That's number one. Number two is ask for what you want. I think that sometimes we get afraid and that's normal. I think we all do. But what we can control is our ask. We can't control what the response is. But if we never ask for what we want, then we never know what it could be. And I think we have to give ourselves permission to do that for ourselves. Because if you're not advocating for yourself, who will, right? So self-advocacy is part of self-care and self-love. And then number three, I know this might sound a little like foo-foo for some people, but healing. Mm. Take that time. If you have been burned in the workplace, if you have experienced trauma in the workplace, give yourself time to heal and rebuild because we don't want you to miss out on a future workplace that could give you that dignity, equity, and respect that you've always should have gotten from the get-go. That is so true. I feel like people really think that because it happened in an office, It isn't traumatizing in a particular way, but I think some of the worst bullying that I ever had happened in a workplace. And the feelings that I had because of that are real. You know, they affected my whole life. And healing from that, I don't even, you know, healing from that was really hard. And it, I, I have a lot of friends who have been injured, you know, psychically in their workplaces And I think it's really hard to recognize and put words on it because sometimes it's the institution that's injuring you. Sometimes it's like the way that HR laid off your entire team. You know, there are things that because it's in a workplace, people use euphemisms. They don't use the real words for what it is. They're not saying like, I don't like you anymore. I'm breaking up with you. They say like, you know, your contract is up. There are words that we use in the workplace that feel like unemotional, but actually your work is really emotional. It's really emotional. And we spend so much time at our jobs and you can't bring your authentic self to work if you're not healthy. Mm. And so it's really important for us to make sure that we're holistically not going back to normal, but to better. Yeah. Um, I have one more question. I don't intend to focus on white men in power, but on the off chance that they're listening, hi, Tom, Eric, Joe, Brian, welcome. (laughs) What do you say? Like, what's one thing that you want that 
proverbial white guy in power to do for the people of color in their office? My work is really based on equity. And when we talk about equity, it's not musical chairs. My goal is not to remove every white man in power. It's to expand the table and to create equity, right? And I think that right now, many white men have positions of power. So I would ask them to think about the seat that they sit in and how they can make it better for somebody else Mm. and bring in a chair along with them. And again, I think we all have a responsibility to make someone else's seat safer. And if you hold most of the seats, what are you doing to make the rest of your community that you work with feel safe and feel that they have access? And I think we all have a duty in the workplace to make it better than we found it. And I hope that they will lean into that. Minda Hartz, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Minda Hartz's new book, her third, is called You Are More Than Magic, The Black and Brown Girl's Guide to Finding Your Voice. And it's available now. You can find out more at mindahartz.com. Even better on Vox.com is Julia Rubin, Alana Oaken, and Melinda Fakwade. This podcast is a special series on Vox Conversations produced in collaboration with the Vox Conversations team. Special thanks to Amber Hall, Amy Drozdowska, Eric Janikis, and Patrick Boyd. Find us on the web at Vox.com slash even hyphen better. And stay tuned for more episodes every Thursday this month with me, Julia. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.